This is Sports Cutting Edge for ASTN, the Australian Sports Technologies Network. Here's your host, Lockie Wills. G'day, hello and welcome to Sports Cutting Edge. Thank you very much for your company. We do it all for the Australian Sports Technologies Network, ASTN. Uh, Check them out at astn.com.au, powering sport through innovation. Okay, so uh, one of the the things from talking to you out there, our listeners, one of the the themes that keeps coming through is um, questions around capital investment. And I know a lot of you out there are on that journey of trying to find investment, trying to find the right investment partner, you know, trying to get the right fit. Because obviously, you know, cash makes the world go round. And, you know, for so many people, uh, capital investment is a beautiful thing that gives and extends opportunity to people who otherwise would not have that opportunity, you know, who are not already sitting on a mound of cash to go and play with. But it is about finding that right opportunity, that right partner. And, you know, I thought, what do we do? How do we try and create an episode that, that works to that goal of trying to guide you, giving you those key sort of lessons and steps? And I, well, there's only one answer, really. Today on the show is a founder of Australia's venture capital industry. This man has been in finance for the best part of 50 years, 48 years, in fact. He is Bob Beaumont, the original business angel who made his name in US finance, has also cut his way through Germany, the UK and Ireland, not to mention his home country, Australia. And, uh, you know, I actually, I found, I found like a time capsule, okay? I found this, an article, a clipping from the Australian Financial Review, April 23rd, 1999, which, you know, it's nearly a quarter of a century ago. But it talks about capital investment and it takes us back to that time of the dot-com boom and then bust uh, where tech was starting to be a thing. You know, it was the the birth of technology, information technology, the late 90s, turn of the millennium. This article says it's it's highlighting uh, or, or doing a deep dive into where Australia's venture capital industry was at that stage and and initially it goes and does a nice pricey of america which obviously you know the land of entrepreneurialism entrepreneurialism ish uh this is what it says by comparison australia is a backwater and its venture capital industry still in its infancy despite good intentions there has been a piecemeal approach to developing an equity culture And then it quotes Bob Beaumont, who it describes as a visionary behind the creation of Australia's venture capital industry. Bob says that greed, this is 1999, greed and short-sightedness got in the way. Bob at that stage was the business angel for the Victorian Employers Chamber of Commerce and Industry, Vecchi. And as I say, this article accredits Bob as being a visionary. He was one that saw the way and helped to create it over the last best part of 25 years and has built Australia's industry so nicely. Um, He's also heavily involved with UCLA and University of California, Berkeley, in terms of uh, promoting and and, and giving Aussies a leverage point into the US. Um, So he's doing tremendous stuff in that respect. 
It was also part of the origin story of ASTN. He helped get, get it going early days and has been there on the journey ever since. As I say, founder of Australia's venture capital industry, the original business angel. On the show today, Bob Beaumont, giving us the secrets to success. How do you get the capital investment? How do you line it up? He's been helping startups for the best part of 50 years. He'll help you today. As well as that, our APAC correspondent, Tom Dimitru, out and about again, this time catching up with one of our favourites, Cam O'Riordan from E-Train U. That's all coming up on the show today. Thank you very much for your company. On the other side of this, it's Bob Beaumont. You're listening to Sports Cutting Edge for ASTN, the Australian Sports Technologies Network. It's a great honour to be joined on the show now by a legend of Australian business, a founder of Australia's venture capital market, a man who made his name in US finance, cut a sway through Germany, the UK, Ireland, New Zealand as well, came back to Australia and was the original business angel, someone who also was crucial in founding the Australian Sports Technologies Network and by extension, sports tech as an industry in this country. Mr. Bob Beaumont, welcome to the show, Bob. Good morning, Lockie. Uh, it's it's terrific to have you on, Bob. And, and you know, it's funny, I was doing a bit of research uh, for our chat and I went through the archives and I found an article, a clipping from the Australian Financial Review, April 23, 1999. And it's speaking about Australia's venture capital industry and it's like talking about a different universe compared to where things are at now, in large part, thanks to you. But it speaks about where Australia's at and it gives the original sort of uh, position and, and describes the way things are in the USA, of course, the home of entrepreneurialism. And then it says, by comparison, Australia is a backwater, quote unquote, backwater, and its venture capital industry is still in its infancy. Despite good intentions, there has been a piecemeal approach to developing an equity culture. And it credits you, Bob Beaumont, as a visionary in starting it. It actually also quotes you as saying greed and short-sightedness got in the way. Bob, you're someone who's a pioneer of venture capital. So many of our listeners are out there searching for capital, searching for the right partners to help make their business dreams come true. Bob, I want you to tell the listeners, what's the key when it comes to capital, when it comes to finding the right partner, what's the key? I think the big issue is uh, to be able to demonstrate you know, you've got an opportunity, right, that uh, is going to excite and encourage, mm. right, smart money, and I'll use that term in a, not, not in a loose way, but investors that basically can add uh, not just capital, but rapid experience and knowledge of your target market, right? Yeah. And that's a really important exercise, right? Uh, when we started the angel uh, type investment back in the very early 90s at the Victorian Employees Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Stephen Shepard, uh, who was the uh, Director of Policy and Research, had spent a long time studying the effects of the bank's demise in the late 80s, early 90s, and their withdrawal from small business lending, and especially, of course, their reluctance to do startup lending, right? and especially entrepreneurial style or tech-based startups. So Business Angels was seen as a source of alternative capital. Right? It still is today. Of course it is. Right? But the one secret to early stage seed capital right, is understanding, if you're an entrepreneur, right, what the exit is for your investor. 
let alone yourself, right? So there is a great need to understand the difference between dumb money and smart money, okay? Dumb money generally comes from uh, those that are using other people's money, right? I think a student at UCLA once said to me, oh, you mean opium? I said, no, I don't mean drugs. He said, no, other people's money. I said, that's very true. That's very true, right? But when we started the first angel group at at Vecchi in the very early 90s, the two things that stood in our way were exactly what you're talking about. How do you bring two parties together? Mm. Okay. And how do you also uh, overcome, if you like, the regulatory barriers, not just cultural barriers, right, to allowing two parties to come together because they're based around security, mm. right? What does an investor want? He doesn't want bricks and mortar, you know, with lots of equity in, you know, and a regular income to pay bank payments, right? He wants to be able to get out of his investment, right, in a pretty short time, right? So he wants a fast exercise. The only security he's going to take is being part of the ownership of that business, uh-huh. equity, equity. Right. So in the early nineties, um, I got together all the combatants I could think of, thanks to the Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. And we had a meeting at the ASX in in Sydney and Melbourne with the four big banks. Mm-hmm. A very smart journalist by the name of Robert Gottlieson. Yeah. Who started BOW? Okay. Um, the CPA, and of course government. All right. So when you look at these things, you think to yourself, hang on, they're all the enemy for small business, if you like, or a starter, right? Well, what better? You're going to bring your enemy close to you, if you like, right? And make sure you create an environment where the two parties can come together, right? So there were some problems with that, and they dealt with mainly in our securities. So we needed an exemption. So the Attorney General's Department, along with the federal government, attended the meeting and said, what are the barriers, Bob, to starting this exercise? And I said, it's really quite simple, right? Um, The particular government at the time wanted a second board to take the place of what the banks weren't doing and the finance companies disappearing, right? And the industry minister at the time was a fellow by the name of Cook, I think, from memory. Mm. Um, And his offside was a senator called Schott from South Australia. Mm. And they had been at this conference with Stephen Shepard in Paris in 92. Uh, and they said, okay, we're dealing in securities. We want an exemption to bring the two parties together. Right? Now, we had no venture capitalists. For an angel, there was no way to exit on an IPO, right, or a trade sale, right, or have a, a larger global company come and, you know, gobble you up per yeah. se, because here we were in backwater Australia, where we might have a lot of good ideas and some great technology, right, and some good supply chains, as we did have at the time. Automotive, electronics, aerospace, 90% of that was in Melbourne, let alone the biotech research, right? So we formed this organisation to remove those barriers. The next barrier is to bring the parties together. And Robert, being a fairly smart journalist, said, why don't we run an article in BIW every week? And I said, what are we going to do with that, Bob? And he said, we'll bring the parties together. So he, just, he developed a 
a single page exercise called Angels Wanted, <laughs> which was a bit of a tongue in cheek dating agency. Okay. <laughs> and he had a very bright uh, journalist and a couple of freelance journalists, less by the name of Amanda Gome, right? And we would supply the angels and the opportunities, plus a stakeholder on one page to give an idea of here's an opportunity, here's an investor, here's a government or a CPA or whatever that are part of the market. You've got to come together with an opportunity and pitch in a very short couple of paragraphs, your opportunity, okay? Yeah. And it was very public, yeah. right? Names were withheld for obvious reasons, but it was a lot of fun, actually. So yeah. we did that every week for nearly three years. Yeah. We got tens of thousands of phone calls, right? It was just ridiculous. Did about, you know, 100-odd investments, you know, quite a bit of money. And, of course, we had our angel group on the side, which was Australia's first angel group, mm. right? apart from a lass that was running an angel service, Christine Kane, mm. who was bringing parties together as an honest broker, you know, for a small commission. So that's the way it came together. So how did it nurture into that? Well, what we found out of Angels Wanted wasn't so much was wrong with the intermediaries. We could teach them, government, accountants, banks, lawyers, whatever, right, and, of course, in academia, when it came to research, right, but it was the investee and the investor. Both of them needed educating mm. rapidly. <laughs> and how did we turn the term smart money? Well, that was easy. Most of the interactions failed miserably because there was nothing in common between the two parties. Right. Nobody had access to markets. Nobody had knowledge of their target customer base. They had no understanding, hadn't done any market research properly. They might have had a good idea, right? But at the end of the day, right, who says so? Who cares, right? And if you can find somebody that cares because you've got that sort of matching process, right, then it's a case of putting the two parties together, right? Yeah. So um, in those emphases, you know, with nothing around, trying to be an alternative, um, it started very slowly. And the one thing I, I decided straight away was after about a thousand applications, right, in the first couple of years, none of them had done their homework properly when it came to market research. Mm. So I went back to my kind of US style business environments and I searched California mainly mm. or Berkeley and Stanford and UCLA, right down in LA, um, business schools to see what they were doing around preparing the marketplace, right, of opportunities for their growing angel environment over there, which was quite different to us, right? And this versioning Silicon Valley, where you had professional VCs, right? And, of course, you also had a NASDAQ that was starting as a secondary market for technology companies. Yeah. So they had this huge market. And, and the reputation of Silicon Valley was, oh, if you're going to go anywhere, you've got to go to Silicon Valley because you'll never have an exit, mm. right? So we thought it was that we're getting so many inquiries. Why don't we look at these business schools on the basis of doing the homework for us? Yeah. Okay? Kind of smart. Yeah, sure. Right? And these weren't uh, students of a young age. These are mature postdoctoral students, right? 
in Berkeley, for argument's sake, a lot of engineering. Because it's up in the valley or in San Francisco. You know, it's a huge base of research, especially military and biomedical, because of the Seventh Fleet being there. Generations of engineers, heaps and heaps and heaps. You know, they did things, made things, whatever. Right? Down in LA, it was all about money. You know, whether it was Hollywood or real estate or realty or whatever, right? Slightly different. But both of them had uh, venture capital access programs mm. for mature students doing MBAs, right? And it was one of the compulsories for their MBA to do a startup right. in the real time, okay? And they had programs for this. And I thought, aha, uh-huh, this is pretty good. This is exactly what we need, right? So uh, having the resources of Vecchi, having some great economists and research facilities, we then start to look at the OECD again and simply say, who's bringing these parties together the most successful and looks like Australia? Okay? So we went right to the top of the pile, Finland. Yeah. Oh. The smartest country in the OECD when it came to bringing the parties together, right, in entrepreneurship, early stage investment. Right? Best by a long way. What made them so good, Bob? What made Finland so good? Uh, A little country um, completely dominated by its neighbour to the uh, right, uh, being Russia. Yeah. Okay. Uh, And St. Petersburg being money and intelligence. Right. Their government, which was a a sort of centralised government, similar to the Kiwis, right, had a department which basically concentrated on one thing, right? And that was the growth, right, of mobile phones. Right. right? Forestry and, to a lesser extent, biotech, right? Mm. They didn't have oil reserves or gas or any of that type of thing. So they were a small country, and they spent a lot of time in their education right, system in the 80s and 90s getting ready for the internet yeah. and software changes. In the 70s and 80s, COBOL dominated IBM software and most COBOL systems were payment systems for governments, mm. okay, or supply chain systems. All of a sudden, this desktop thing started to come in in the 80s and they had to connect that together somehow. Well, I'd learned from McKinsey that that was landline, of course, in the 70s and 80s. Mm. But coming in the 90s was this thing that was going to be called the internet. Yeah. Okay. And this was way before the internet. And I thought, okay, this is pretty cool. These guys really know what they're doing. They're the cutting edge, right? Um, they're running programs which will make our entrepreneurs smarter, better market researched, right? And save investors who are smart people, right? A lot of time by putting the two parties together. If I can eliminate a bad proposition mm. using an American system, okay, which is basically the exit for the angel, or the VC, uh, I've just employed this two of the best business schools in the world mm. to do the job for me. Okay? Jerry Engel and John Freeman up in um, my old school in Berkeley, yeah. right? And of course, uh, Alvin Svensson and Bob Foster down at Anderson Business School in UCA, the world's biggest number one financial MBA, right? So how did I do that? That was simple, right? I had to pay for it now, right? So I worked on the basis of saying this is all about the entrepreneur getting them ready, 
Yeah. Market research. Then the next thing was how to teach them how to pitch. Because I had a couple of professional journalists interviewing the people for Angels Wanted. They could convert their babble, if you like, very scoofily, into a couple of simple paragraphs that mm-hmm. were entertaining, right, and encouraging and sank of opportunity. Yeah. And I thought, this is cool. I'll blend a lot of this together. But who's going to pay for it? Okay. Now, in the early days, our angel group paid a lot of money for these things, and we took quite a few guys. Um, and incidentally, it got to the point that I said, we're not going to have enough money. We're going to have to go back to, you know, to government. And once again, using the power of the chamber right, and their lobbying capacity, Chamber of Commerce in the 80s and 90s were very good at delivering government programs, state and federal. Mm-hmm. And it was the early stage of things like OH&S, right? Mm-hmm. So they had big memberships, small businesses to listed corporates, all scared of these things, hence the reason I belonged to Chambers, yeah. to educate them, okay? Yeah. Well, and truly what was coming, right? Well, what else was coming was something that none of them understood. It was called the Internet. Mm. And then instantly, what you and I are doing now was going to happen. And yeah. nobody was going to stop it, right? So how are we going to get on the bandwagon to make sure you put up quality opportunities? Yeah. Okay? And to be honest, to save the mums and dads from going into their pocket to support their sons or daughters, you know, in some crazy entrepreneurial fling that is going to lose 60 years worth of hard works and savings, okay? Yeah. Uh, no, that's that's true, and that's still that's still today, still. Yeah. yeah. So I started manipulating, if you like, with, with a committee and a, a lot of friends, and we started to look at particular segments of the market, right? After three or four years, well, this time it was two thousand. The bubble had burst in yeah. Silicon Valley in March, right? And we we're on about our fourth round, and we sent maybe a hundred entrepreneurs to Berkeley or UCLA, right? market research, whatever. And we'd eliminated, I've got to be honest, probably 90% of those. Yeah. Right? <laughs> ten, ten of those first lot of companies are all around today or either listed, IPO'd or been bought out and for yeah. multi-millions. That's, that's an incredible achievement, Bob. You know, at that well, time in history, for you to get 10% up, you know, that's a big thing. It, well, it was at the time, but it's, it's like anything. An entrepreneur is an enthusiastic, energetic, you know, group of people and all the individuals. Yeah. And the timing was right because all of a sudden you didn't have to get on a plane to some extent. The internet was starting to give you an environment where you could look at your competition. Mm. Am I too early? Am I too late? Is this a good idea, a bad idea? Right, who's going to listen to me? Why would I get a, on a plane and go to... You know, Silicon Valley, you know, when somebody's going to say to me, oh, we did that 10 years ago, son. You know, you didn't do your homework, you know. <laughs> so I didn't want that to happen, right? And I wanted to keep our, in all fairness, our angels and early VCs as honest as I could. Mm. Right? So I engaged with them as well and brought them in to be judges on competitions to send entrepreneurs off to Berkeley or UCLA. In some cases, Stanford, right? Dublin, Scotland, and a few other places around the, around the world, right? 
Texas for the um, IT and, and aerospace industry, right? So Silicon Valley style thing was Silicon Chip. You know, so we had did the same thing at UT in Texas in Austin, yeah, right, for several years. The, the 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 timing was everything at the time. It didn't exist. There were no alternatives. There was no organisations. High net worth individuals had to run resources anyway. You know, so the the packers of the world, if you like, per yeah. se, they had everybody: finance, lawyers, you know, whatever. They could buy and sell whatever they wanted, right? But for young entrepreneurial Australians, um, they needed a leg up. Uh, and we were a backwater. I mean, at the end of the day, most people went and got an MBA in Australia. If you were, a, I don't know, a bank clerk, a public servant, mm. uh, an accountant, you know, whatever, 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 whatever. It wasn't the same as UCLA or Berkeley, where you're a postdoctoral, a lot of it engineering, right? And of course, a lot of it in the entrepreneurial and intellectual property cycle, mm. right? taking research and applying it. It's as simple as that. So all these barriers that we had and still got to some extent today, right, meant that the one weakness in the whole exercise was how do you get out of an investment once you get in? Mm. So for a business angel um, to do this on their own, right, it's a pretty hard exercise, right? So Shepard and I and Robert, got leasing to some extent, and quite a few others, really worked, and some of the early VCs through the AAF program, decided that we needed to bring these things together. And the government, who was making investments, in the way grant programs and venture programs, etc., got something back for their money. You know, in other words, we grew businesses, you know, very quickly. But we also created a process that eliminated opportunities very quickly. Because they hadn't done their homework properly. Or they didn't have their IP in place. Or they couldn't protect their idea. Right? Or they didn't really have the right team. You know, they did not have a good advisory board. You know, that knew the market they were trying to disrupt. Yeah. Okay. And that advisory board wasn't going to invest in them anyway. Right? Except yeah. their time and energy. So how do you correct these situations so you create a few winners? Right? Well, the secret lies, right, in knowing your place in the market. Yeah. It's as simple as that, right? How do you know whether you're going to disrupt something? The Finns and to some extent the Kiwis in the particular market sector, right, have been doing this for about 10 years mm-hmm. as Silicon Valley grew, right? And they did it around a couple of particular market sectors, mm-hmm. right? Mainly IT and communications. Well and truly. And they did it very well. They didn't try to do every market sector. They just concentrated on this virgining uh, telecom, come smartphone, it would come, come internet, it would link, come laptop, it would go. You can see me. Hello, here I am. You know, I've got this idea. It's great. Well, tell you what, your idea is shit because you didn't do your homework properly. Yeah. And I was trying to eliminate that. Right. And Commonly today, you would call it deal flow. Um, By the end of the 90s, around about 99, I started to have more of an interaction with state and federal governments uh, via VECI to to some extent, and said to them, look, 
you, you want to put some money into the market to try and prime the market. I can tell you now, you're not going to create a Silicon Valley. It's not going to happen. Right? And governments had a bit of a problem, especially federal governments had a bit of a problem with this because they didn't want Australian intellectual property being sold off cheaply to other countries, you know, via the valley, yeah. maybe London or Paris or Germany or whatever. Right? And I said, well, look, you're going to have to be in a position where you're forbidden. If, if we you know, start to give some money, educate an opportunity, it moves through its growth pattern, right, and it's got to either sell or list or whatever, right, and it's got to go to a foreign market to do this, you're going to have to be prepared, you know, to see that IP disappear somewhere else. Yeah. And intellectual property is a big issue here, a really big issue, right? So with that in mind, we started to segment the market. And Jimmy, um, God love him, um, I got a lot of time for James. He's, 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 um, to, me, to me, James is like a, um, I know, he's like a woodcutter. Yeah. Uh, you, you light a fire and he'll fuel the thing. He's a pyromaniac. <laughs> you know, once he's got it, you know, in his sights, he's off. Yeah. Uh, and in uh, 2002, he probably won't uh, remember this too much. He headed up a small um, IT company called Remesis. Oh. During the late uh, 90s, I'd been involved in helping the federal government start a program called Comet, mm. commercialising an emerging technology. It was only 50 grand, but it had to be met dollar for dollar by the entrepreneur. Right. So you got 100 grand maximum to find out whether you would be investment ready, as we call it. Okay? Yeah. That's what paid for these guys to, and girls to go to boot Berkeley and to UCLA. Okay? Mm. How do you do that? We got the angel group, right, to teach them how to pitch. Okay? Then we ran competitions, right? So we yeah. would convert those thousand inquiries every quarter from Angels Wanted, right, through mm. the angel system, which became like a service, if you like, okay? Mm. And twice a year, we held a competition to send 10, 15, 20 boys and girls off to Texas or LA or, or San Fran, right? mm. well and surely. February 2002, James went off, right? We got him a grant for a company called Remesis. Yeah. yeah. And he went to UCLA to do the Global Access Program, which was a six-month-long postdoctoral, right, for yeah. MBA students, yeah. looking at Remesis, developing a business plan, doing all the market, primary and secondary research, mm. right, to allow that company to raise capital, you know, and target a particular market sector that they would look for. And at the end of the six months, James and his team would be led by five or six postdoctorals who pitched to an investment panel. Right. Now, this investment panel was naturally enough made up in California of the best and the biggest. You know, so you had everyone you can think of from VC companies like Sequoia, yeah. you know, and their investors like Microsoft or Intel. You, know, mm-hmm. you had everyone you could possibly think of, right, that seriously was deadly interested. Right, first hand, sitting there, CEOs, CTOs, right, watching this pitch of this Aussie company. Yeah. 
Nine times out of ten, they were told to go home. Yeah. They wasted their time. Yeah. Okay. That made our angels very happy, right? Yeah. Because they would see, you know, they'd be out of pocket 50 grand. You know, what the hell, who cares? Yeah. You make, you make 20 investments and two of them work out and they pay for the 20, okay? Yeah. The principle was that, right? So bringing the people together was an issue. And the big issue today is kind of we've got supply. We've got angel groups in every capital city, which is great. Um, a lot of those early guys, uh, people like Jordan Green started Melbourne Angels, right, in the late 90s, etc. As a junior, he'd spent some time in Silicon Valley. Uh, he used to come and see me. On, uh, I had guys from the early days of Nokia and Ericsson, right, which were big players in the 80s and 90s in mobile phones. Right, their CTOs, right, sitting on panels. I had high net worth individuals. I had early Australian VCs, yeah. right, uh, like the Brothers Grimm, as I effectively called them, yeah. right, one of which turned out to be our chief scientist for a while, right, yeah. Ron and his, his, his brother. And they all participated in trying to get the market off the ground by using these competitions, yeah. right, to identify right, entrepreneurs, willing to take the risk, right, to go and see if they had an opportunity mm. through this process. So this went on for a long time, actually. Um, and during that period in 99, a lot of things happened in that particular year, right? Mm. Um, Commercialisation Australia uh, was in the wings to replace um, Comet, right? Oh. And we went from 50 million to 250 million. And these were 10 year programs. Yeah. Right. Based around commercializing. Right. We've moved away from the great idea, you know, and there are lots of entrepreneurs that have great ideas and some of them succeed. Right. Mm. Many don't. Mm. But we move more to the right of technology style opportunities. Yeah. Being yeah. a point of difference. Okay. How am I different from the next guy? Oh, you know, my software does it ten times faster for one-tenth the money, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. Okay. Yeah. I've got an unfair advantage over my two top targets, which are globals, you know. I can unseat them, whatever, whatever, whatever. Huh? Yeah. So when James went in 2002, I think he got a bit of a shock. Right? He learned very quickly, you know, how professional the whole supply chain was mm. for Silicon Valley in particular and the venture capital industry, mm. right? And to that extent, right, uh, over the years as he moved on doing a lot of these other exercises, I got him involved in other ones that came out of our angel environment, um, mm. advisory company, which he was very, very good salesman door opener, James. Right, yeah. think a little bit wider than most people. So, 2006, um, we both moved into a shared office. Him into an advisory position for another company, which I'd taken to California, who had told the company get somebody like James. Mm. It was in uh, online uh, educational. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, it was a brilliant technical team, really brilliant. Right, but had no idea how to tackle the virgin market of Eurasia at all, yeah. India and China particularly, where James, of course, as he usually is, you know, the bull at a gate, 
get a team together, surround them, you know, head in, do the trade mission, you know, bells and whistles, typical Jimmy, right? Yeah. Um, so we worked together for a while, and uh, during that period of time, um, we started to talk about market segmentation. Mm. Right, of it's try, instead of trying to pick a market that it would take us a while to establish our name in, why don't we pick a segment of the market, right, that globally everybody recognises us for? Yeah. The Olympics had finished in 2000. Mm. Okay. Everybody globally knew that Australia pulled above its weight when it came to sport. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just talking AFL, but I mean Olympics, you know, as, as well as Commonwealth Games, you know, swimming, athletic, it didn't matter what it was. Mm. We were well known. Uh, the other thing was a great media assistance it was a little fellow that used to uh, paint the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Uh, yeah, him <laughs> and his mate made such a huge impact in LA, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, that we were flavour in the nineties, mid nineties. You know, we didn't all carry Bowie knives and you know crocodile teeth in our hair and all that sort of rubbish, but it gave us an instant identity, right? Yeah. And the America's Cup, right? So we had this big following which we didn't have to pay for sport, okay? And I said to James, I said, look, look at some of these companies that, you know, I've been processing. They're actually around the edge of sport. Yeah. Not the mechanics, not so much the wearables. That was a bit early, right? But data, you know. We do data really well, you know. And and, and I used to say to him, look, think about Think of all the sports bars in America. You know, with a hundred television screens screaming everything from MBL to, you know, ladies ice hockey or whatever. Yeah. Right. That's a culture that's been there since the second war. Right. So we need to kind of plug into this. There's a lot of data here. They talk a lot about data. ESPN was just starting. Okay. It was starting because of the internet. Right. And we were very lucky in Australia in the late nineties. We had two good entrepreneurs who had a license to print money because they had licenses to be internet providers, mm. right? One of them was a little company called Aussie Mail. Yeah. Okay. Which turned out to be a much bigger company later on, Double Net. Okay. And one was a little company called um, Free Online, a different model, not a subscription model, right? But something that warmed uh, Robert Gottlieb's heart, it was an advertising model. You got it for free because you had to put up with the ads. Yeah, okay? yeah. Now, those two companies came out of Melbourne and Sydney. Mm. They were big enablers for our early internet, okay? So straight away, I said to James, look, we've got a lot of data companies here that are really good at collecting data, mm. sports data. ESPN had loved this sort of stuff, yeah. let alone the sports medicines and then mm. the hard products around sport, right? At the time... Mm. I had spent a bit of time with a company down in Geelong that was making a knee brace for motocross. Right. Okay. And it came up uh, through one of the um, Angels Wanted exercise that this young fellow that, who had actually been a surfboard uh, champion had moved to motocross and saw the problem with injured knees in motocross. And I said to him, What's your problem? He said, 
I don't have the technology to fix the problem. Everyone's got braces that are made out. I said, hang on, before you start. So we got him a little grand off to UCLA. He went, right? After six months, he's been back four times, I think, or three times, to get updated business plans and market research done, right? They said to him, do something about the uncomfortable scenario of knee braces. Now, in sport, right, there are a lot of things you wear that are uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah, lots. So I said to him, there you are. Go and make a comfortable knee brace. Yeah. Well and truly, right? I introduced him to an IP firm and a couple of engineers, yeah. right, who basically said, no, look, the, the, the pin-style brace is gone. We went and talked to some surgeons that did sports medicine surgery. Mm. They said, wrong brace, shouldn't wear it, doesn't help, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm. Others said, it's too heavy. We looked at the dominating forces supply at mm. the time, you know, and then, like all good market research people, which the UCLA had pointed out, we went and talked to some of the retailers, the motorbike guys, mm-hmm. and said, would you guys mind flogging a knee brace that does two things? One, it's one-tenth the price. Two, it doesn't break. Three, it's comfortable. And four, from a medical point of view, it's better for you. Yeah. yeah. It actually works with your knee properly. Okay. Out of that business, he grew a business, which he still got today. A nice $20 million small business. Not a VC-style business, but an angel-style business, which he grew very slowly. So that was typical of sport. And I said to James, we need to think about how you can get a cluster or a group together. Mm. The same way that we started the angel movement. And make sure, like the angel wanted that, right, we've got supply, demand, and some form of facilitation, some form of self-interest. Yeah. Right? And we'll use our old angel model in competition. Right? Now, the forceful part about that, during this period of time, Robbie Reed, great guy from Geelong, right? Mm. Bit of a computer guy. Mm. Been in the late 90s, he, he came to me and said, I'd like to be an angel. Da, da, da. And I said to him, well, you don't really know a whole lot except you're in. So I sent him off to Berkeley to do a venture capital access program. Right. Right. where he met John Freeman and, and Jerry Engel. Right. He did the program and came back and started ITC. Mm-hmm. So once again, we shared the same principle of a competition mm-hmm. with vested partners around the outside facilitators and whatever, VCs, angels, God knows what else, right, to run these, you know, if you like, panel side of the competition and mm-hmm. find somebody that could do the administration bits and pieces. Yeah. Because Robbie had a young uh, Hilly, who was a great guy, fantastic, just the right sort of guy, right age, you know, doing a thing. James jumped in, you know, took on the buddy sort of chair thing. He said, right, we're going to do it, and we're going to do it this way. Typical James, right? I said, right, on, fill the fire, Jim, fill the fire. I'll just <laughs> give you the ammo, yeah. and I'll give you the know-how. It's as simple as that, right? Okay. And we'll make some spaces so that these guys can go, the girls. Right. So we started to send them off. Right. So what we were doing was propagating the way to bring parties together by making sure they were ready for each other. Mm. Did they really seriously have a quality opportunity right. at the end of the day? Mm. Maybe we might even get the banks and the accountants to turn. Mm. Right. 
And a lot of our early IT came out of Melbourne, Naramite and Swinburne. Okay. So Geelong was the next projected exercise. Robbie Reed, of course, being a successful entrepreneur, mm. right, was close to Deacon, right, and we wanted to see if Deacon would come online, right, and help, you know, Jim and Hilly and all the rest get the sports thing off the ground through ITC, mm. right. And the segmentation was perfect. Initially, it was a few hardware companies, you know, the rest was kind of software, a little bit of health, early starter wearables, just simple opportunities, right, but defined in sport. The brand was great. What made our swimmers swim better? You know, why do we do well in pole vault or discus running? Yeah. You know, why is it so? You know, as a very famous American professor once said, right? It was very easy then, right, to work on the basis of saying, well, let's get a group together that have got a self-interest. Uh-huh. I think the conferences of 2000, 2001, uh, 2010 and 2011, Jimmy really hit the nail on the coffin. He really did, did well, right? And most of the people who supplied in those workshops, I actually even brought in our old CO from Afghanistan, right, yeah, uh, yeah. to teach something about how the SAS managed and operate risk. Right. right, and this was also to teach, quite frankly, the Australian intermediaries, mm. right, as well as entrepreneurs, that about one in three venture capital managers right, in the US have military backgrounds, mm. especially in high-risk reward environments. Mm. Okay, so this is how Jim and I sort of got it together. I had, I did not have any time to be doing or participating in ASTV or ASTN, right? To be honest, I was trying to find a way to retire, you know, (laughs) right? (laughs) And after about four or 500 companies, you know, that I sort of nurtured through the 90s and, you know, early 2000, I was getting a bit long in the tooth and a bit tired, right? And I'd done enough, I think, to bring it together. James uh, has carried on the system or the process yeah. By simply saying that your exit largely is always going to be offshore. Yeah. We don't have enough of a capital market. We have no Fortune 500 companies. None. You know, even the Kiwis have got two. Mm. We got that. Right. So we've got no way to exit investments. If we mm. IPO, it's probably one way. But I, IPO in Australia, mm, you know. Mm. Maybe a handful have and been reasonably successful, don't get me wrong. Most of them end up as trade sales once they IPO. Mm. Right? None of our sports tech guys are ever going to be big enough right, to get to that level. So accessing your exit mm. or your growth partner, your smart money, uh, which usually means a bloody big client base, okay, yeah. is really what ASTM was going to be all about. Yeah. Well and truly. Well and truly. If you create smart opportunities, take them to the right place at the right time, you know, whether it's an Olympic Games, a Commonwealth Games, a FIFA, or whatever the hell it is, yeah. right? If it's data, it's Silicon Valley, you know, or it's London or it's Germany, right? Whatever it is, the bottom line is, right, get them ready. 
Mm. Make sure they are investment ready. If you're not investment ready, if you haven't tested yourself, you are never, ever going to get smart money. Oh, Bob, you've just given the most magnificent summary, uh, the full DNA of what venture capital is, the way that you've built it. Honestly, Bob, you know, you've got to be tremendously uh, proud of, of what you've done, what you've achieved, because you've helped other people make their dreams come true. Um, Bob, I just thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's, it's great to chat with a legend, and you are a legend. Thank you very much. Anytime, Lockie. Love to talk to you. Oh, just tremendous. Tremendous to have someone of that ilk on the show, Bob Beaumont there. Uh, let's now head out to APAC correspondent. He's out on the ground, this time with Cam O'Riordan. I work with E-Train U, so we're an e-learning platform provider and we try to build better communities through education and we work across over 10 different sectors with a focus on the sport and disability sector. At the moment we're expanding into other international regions so we work across regions in the US and the UK and we've got some exciting announcements in the coming weeks about that as well. As a Queensland based company heading to the 2032 Olympic Games is paramount for us and it gives us the opportunity to work across a number of different events as we grow and as we scale and we just want to see the best people using the best technology in Australia and hopefully E-Train use part of that journey for them. Our ultimate goal is to keep going global and we're really passionate about education and we want to build communities through education and we really believe out through education we can do that and we can impact everyone in sport whether they're a player, a parent, a coach, a referee or a club volunteer. Uh, we love Cam, we love E-Train U, and we love Tom Dimitriou. Magnificent stuff. That wraps us up for today. Thank you very much for your company. Sports Cutting Edge, we'll catch you next week. You've been listening to Sports Cutting Edge for the Australian Sports Technologies Network. For more, jump online at astn.com.au.